Well, good morning, uh, Christ City. Uh, wherever you are around Vancouver, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together this morning that comes uh, from Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. He writes this, And you, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Remaining standing, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess this morning that if we were to have made up a religion on our own, uh, it would not have involved the cross. It would not have at its center the death of your son, Jesus. And so help us this morning, a people who find the cross very strange, to understand the justice, love, and grace to be found in the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. Well, all of us are doing the work of uh, an interpreter all the time, all the time. That means we are running the events of our life, both victorious and disastrous, uh, the relationships we have, everything through a filter of what we believe to be true about this world. Uh, As these polarizing times remind us, uh, this interpretation can often differ. Uh, The election of a political candidate for one group can can result in joyous celebration. Uh, It can, in another group, result in a a great sadness or or distress. We're always doing this work of interpreting, running the world through a grid, a lens of our values and what we believe all the time. But what I want to suggest to you this morning, and what I want to hopefully help you see this morning, is that your time would be best spent taking all of that interpretive energy and, and looking afresh, looking anew, at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ of Nazareth in the first century in Jerusalem. That's our topic this morning, the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. The cross, as you well know, is a globally recognized symbol. There is seldom a place on planet Earth you can go, uh, whether, you're, uh, whether it's marking a hospital, a, a church, or, or even a dispensary, where, where the cross is not evident, where the cross is not apparent. And what has happened is that we, societally, have become inoculated to the fact that, many, uh, of, that what adorns many of our most prominent buildings and organizations is an image of something that originated as a barbarian form of torture adopted by ancient Greece and Rome to execute the worst criminals. When's the last time you turned your interpretive energy, Christian or not, to the cross of Jesus, this worldwide global symbol? How should we understand the cross? What I want to do today is ask two very simple questions concerning the crucifixion of Jesus. Very simply, ask these two questions. First, why was Jesus crucified? Why was Jesus crucified? And secondly, how should we respond? How should we, if at all, respond to the crucifixion of Jesus? Those are our two questions today. So first, why was Jesus crucified? Why was Jesus crucified? Depending on which interpretive lens we're looking through, we'll arrive at different answers. 
Let's begin with how perhaps historians would answer this question. If we were to read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as historians, there would be two primary characters of interest to us when seeking to answer the question, why was Jesus crucified? The the, the first character we meet is actually a, a group of people, a group of people, the Jewish leaders. These Jewish leaders who interacted with Jesus throughout the duration of his ministry. And from the beginning, what we find in the Gospels is that Jesus and these Jewish leaders did not get along. It it wasn't a, a, a collegial atmosphere. In fact, after Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, a man who had a, a, a crippled hand, after Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, the gospel writer Mark tells us this in, in Mark 3, that the Pharisees, one religious group, went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, another religious group with different goals, but another religious group nonetheless, and they held counsel against Jesus, how to destroy Jesus. It might seem strange to us that a healing of a person, something that we would celebrate, has prompted two typically opposing religious groups at the time in the first century to now work together to destroy someone, is what Mark tells us. And so what's going on here? Well, as you read Jesus' teaching about himself, and what we should do and indeed have not done, you soon find that the reason is is obvious. Throughout his ministry, Jesus assumes an authority that is only appropriate for God himself to assume. He claims to personally, this is Jesus, be the interpretive key to the Jewish scriptures. And so we find comments like this in John 5. For if you believed Moses, and here Jesus is making reference to the Torah or the Jewish scriptures, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me. And then he says this, which is really crazy to say and and, and consider it in its context. For Moses wrote of me. Jesus centers himself as the interpretive key of the Jewish scriptures. What's more, if that wasn't enough to upset the Jewish leaders, what's more is that these Jewish leaders were often the subject of Jesus, rather the object of Jesus' harshest criticism, most intense rebukes. He, he did not pull punches with these religious leaders. It should not surprise us then as historians that these Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus. But again, if we're going to understand this from a historical perspective, we have to recognize that it's not quite that simple. They just couldn't put Jesus to death. And now we meet our second group, the second group of people we need to encounter. Indeed, it's actually one person, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate. As some of you know, the Jewish people at the time of Jesus' life were an occupied people uh, under the thumb of Rome. And while they enjoyed certain freedoms, While they enjoyed certain religious liberties, uh, they were certainly not free to do whatever they would like. And one of those things that they were not free to do was to put someone to death. Putting someone to death was in the domain of Rome. Only Rome, only Caesar could put someone to death. The Jews could not kill one of their own while under Roman occupation. And so the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate. Pilate, initially hesitant uh, to prosecute Jesus, initially hesitant to put him to death, soon finds a crowd forming. A crowd forming. And listen to what happens next in Matthew 27. One gospel writer says this. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, 
He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Now because the cross is everywhere, what we're left with in, in this modern world is sort of a domesticated cross, a, a tame version of the cross. No, 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 no blood on it. And because we have a domesticated cross, I want to make sure we understand what's actually happening here. Crucifixion itself was regarded as a horror to both the Romans and the Jews. And from what we can gather from other first century documents about crucifixion, we can summarize what happened like this. And one scholar puts it like this. The prisoner, in this case it's Jesus, would first be publicly humiliated by being stripped naked. He was then laid on his back on the ground. We read in the Gospels that more than that, Jesus was scourged. That Jesus was lashed. He was then laid on his back on the ground while his hands were either nailed or roped to the horizontal wood beam and his feet to the vertical pole. The cross was then hoisted to an upright position. Before we get to that, Jesus had to carry his cross. Indeed, at one point, could no longer carry his cross. So the Romans grabbed someone else to help Jesus with his cross. So weak. So weak was Jesus at the time. The cross was then dropped into a socket which had been dug for it in the ground. And... There he would hang, helplessly exposed to intense physical pain, public ridicule, daytime heat, and nighttime cold. The torture would last several days. The Romans knew the evil in in what they did. Crucifixion was reserved for only the the worst in society, particularly those who who were a threat, rather, to to Rome, who, who were a threat to Caesar. And seldom were Roman citizens themselves actually crucified. They were given the more palatable option of being beheaded instead. And it's this form of execution, this form of murder, that Jesus goes. And the question, to get back to where we started, we're seeking to answer right now is why? Why was Jesus crucified? And the historian responds, indeed can only respond, Jesus was crucified because of the envy of the religious leaders and the cowardice of Pilate. But how did the first Christians answer this question? How did the first believers, first followers of Jesus answer this question? Why was Jesus crucified? Well, we don't need to guess at the answer. We don't need to guess at what they said because it's actually recorded for us. And one of the earliest histories of the church, the book of Acts, we're told by, in a speech given by Peter, one of the first followers of Jesus, that this is why Jesus was crucified. Peter says this, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Why was Jesus killed? The Christian responds, because ultimately it was God's plan. See, from the very first pages of the Bible, from the very first pages of the Bible, we read of God's plan to one day restore his relationship. Not just with humanity, but indeed with all of creation. One day he will make that relationship brand 
new. Why, why will he do this? What does that presuppose? Because things and this world and you and I are not as they should be. We are not as we should be. And I don't think given all that's occurred in the past six, seven months, I need to sell you on that. I think that's readily apparent to most of us, that things in this world are not as they should be. But what you might not believe is that things are not as they should be because you and I are not as we should be. G.K. Chesterton, the, the famous essayist, he, he once responded to a local newspaper who asked him the question, what is wrong with the world, uh, by writing this. Chesterton says this, Dear Sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? And then Chesterton says, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. And so according to plan, Jesus willingly, willingly, not against his will, this is not divine child abuse, Jesus willingly takes on full humanity, we saw that last week, and is crucified. Crucified. And in the crucifixion of Jesus, Christians have always believed that we find both the justice of God and the love of God. There those two things, justice and love, meet. See, we see God's justice because at the cross, Jesus makes necessary payment for sin and rebellion. We read at the beginning of our time together from Colossians 2.13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, we were dead and alienated from God, outside of God. Not only dead, but heading towards death. And what's made clear here is that our trespasses, our sin, our rebellion, our, our shame results in death. And as uncomfortable and, and unpopular as that sounds, and I know I'm not, uh, I'm not immune to the fact that this sounds really unreasonable in our world today, but as unpopular as that sounds, as uncomfortable as we are with it, it's worth asking the question, what if sin wasn't? punished? Or what if evil wasn't atoned for? What if that wasn't true? What if evil, corporate evil, big, big evil, and, and personal evil, you and me kind of evil, what if that evil was not met with justice? What if that was not met with, with a right and just punishment? And we would be outraged. Indeed, in these past few months, we have seen outrage at moments of injustice. And surely, a God who does not deal justly with injustice is not worthy of our worship. And so while we, we, we shy away from the language of sin and rebellion, we at the same time need to remember that we want justice. For Christians, that comes from a place of being made in the image of God. Indeed, all of humanity made in the image of God. We, like God, want justice. It's in our DNA. But God, and only God, is the perfectly just judge. God, in his judging, never overreacts or underreacts. His judgment is always perfect. And his judgment, in the case of humanity, of, of you and me, is that the evil ran so deep that only his son, his perfect 
Son, who took on full humanity, could atone, could pay for our sin. The cross shows us the justice of God. And yet, the cross also shows us God's love, his tremendous, amazing love, because it is Jesus and not us who was crucified on that day. It was Jesus and not you or me, though we deserved it, who was nailed to that ancient, terrible execution device, this horrible and evil contraption. It is Jesus who bears the perfectly just wrath of God in our place for our sin. The rest of our reading this morning continued to say this, God made alive together with him, that's talking about us, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against who? Us, Paul writes, with its legal demands, its need for justice. This he set aside. This was satisfied, nailing it to the cross where Jesus was crucified. So why was Jesus crucified? Again, to go back to that question, I'm not satisfied with saying that Jesus was crucified as a result of earthly power dynamics, religious leaders' envy, or or Pilate's cowardice. No, as followers of Jesus, indeed, all of us must affirm what one preacher said a long time ago. Who delivered up Jesus to die? Octavius Winslow asked. Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, Not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. The cross has endured for millennia at the heart of the Christian faith on the simple fact that at the cross, not only do we see the justice of God, but we see God's love as well. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples One of Jesus' disciples, having seen the crucifixion, wrote these words. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This this word propitiation, it's a big word, but all it's doing is telling us that in love, the father sends his son to bear God's just anger at our sin in our place. Theologians call what happened at the cross the great exchange, where we are given Jesus's righteousness, his goodness, his obedience that came from his life, and in return, he bears our sin. He bears our punishment. An exchange has taken place. What remains for us to ask is how should we respond? How should we respond to this message? Quite obviously, the the response of historians and indeed others who seek to interpret the crucifixion is to note it's happening, that it happened in history, and then to move on, to to simply move on. The cross remains, for for many people, only a historical event. An an interesting historical event, but, but a historical event nonetheless. But as we we conclude, I I want to once again have us consider how we might interpret the cross through the lens of faith. 
a lens the scriptures invite us into. Specifically, I want us to see two things. That the cross is necessary both in conversion and in continuing with Jesus. The cross is necessary both in conversion and in our continuing with Jesus, walking with Jesus. So first, by the cross, we enter the Christian faith or we are converted. Jesus said these famous words in Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and and follow me. As strange and as countercultural as this sounds, following Jesus begins with death. With death. Death to self-sufficiency. Death to the idea that I can be right with God right with the world, right with other people, on my own merit, by my sheer willpower and virtue, that I can just muster it up inside of myself. And if you've been trying to do that, trying to find that virtue in these challenging times, you know how difficult, indeed impossible it is for all of us. By beginning with Jesus' death, we agree with God that our brokenness runs so deep, our shame runs so deep, that we cannot do it on our own. That we need, as a people, humanity, that we need external, divine, crucifixion kind of atonement, crucifixion kind of payment. But can I be honest? If the Christian life was only about death, that would be a huge bummer. That would be a huge bummer. No, in the same way, and Jesus gives this example in the Gospel of John, in the same way, a seed must first die, enter the ground and and die, so to speak, before it can come out of the ground and flourish, so too do we need to first die before you and I can flourish, in fact, receive new life in Jesus. We know this. We know that this pattern is true because not only was Jesus crucified, but we also truly believe that Jesus was resurrected, that he is alive today. Next week, we're going to look at the resurrection in depth, uh, more thoroughly, and John, our executive pastor, will be speaking to you uh, about the resurrection. But what's important to note about the resurrection today is that while historians can write off Jesus's birth as being only natural and not supernatural. Historians can minimize his life to that of a popular teacher in the first century, a Galilean uh, in origin. And historians can sadly acknowledge that his death was only the result of first century politicking. Historians have no good answers for the resurrection. The resurrection is not so easily ignored. There is only one interpretive lens for the resurrection, and it's the lens of faith. See, the resurrection is the key by which you and I come to understand the true meaning of the crucifixion. Indeed, without it, the crucifixion is meaningless. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes these very words. He says this, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, Paul says this, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul will say in that very same section 
that if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then Christians are the most pathetic people, most to be pitied, most to be shamed. But we believe, indeed, we have confessed for millennia that Jesus is raised from the dead. And the only work that remains is not to do better or to try harder or to muster some sort of energy in ourselves, but simply to look at the cross and to look at the resurrection through the eyes of faith. It's to believe, to see what, in the most meaningful sense, truly happened. See, the cross speaks not only to our conversion, finally, it also speaks to our continuing with Jesus as well. It speaks to our continuing with Jesus. This past week, I sat down with a mentor who just happened to be finishing uh, his final uh, draft uh, on his commentary uh, in the book of Philippians, uh, a letter to the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And so I asked him a question. I said, you've done all this work on this commentary. Can you give me one pastoral nugget one sort of diamond, if you will, to encourage me with this morning. And he referenced Philippians 2, 5 to 11. I want to just read that for you now. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And we saw that this means not emptying himself of his divine nature, but, but, but becoming a servant by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, in light of the cross, this is what Paul writes, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then this mentor friend of mine said this, and I'll never forget it, the paradigm for Christian leadership, and I think for all of the Christian life, is always one of emptying is always one of pouring out, is always one of giving and self-sacrifice, indeed one of a servant. Because isn't it true that even after we come to know Jesus, even after we come to believe and trust in the cross and in the resurrection, we still are fighting forces all the time in us and in this world that say, get yours, make a name for yourself, look out for number one. And our greatest weapon against these forces that assail us is the example of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, full of deity, fully God. Jesus, who dies a death that was beneath the Romans and was despised by the Jews. It is Jesus who resurrected of the dead, will one day at his return be confessed as king of all to the glory of God the Father. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you did not withhold your son Jesus from us, but that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross in our place, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. 
Father, I pray for each person listening right now who does not know Jesus, that they would in fact encounter him this morning, would confess him as Lord, and in doing so enter the life, the resurrection life you have for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.